Welcome to Zealots of the Gate, a podcast of Comment Magazine. I'm Matthew Kamink. I'm Shadi Hamid. Together we research politics, religion, and the future of democracy at Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. We are writing a book together. This podcast represents an informal space where we can talk about how to live with deep difference. Thanks so much for joining us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please leave us a review. We love to see them, uh, especially if they're five stars, but even if they're not. You can join the conversation and ask us questions by using the hashtag ZealotsPod on Twitter, or feel free to email us at zealots at comment.org. So you guys know the drill. Matt and I are good friends. That said, perhaps we shouldn't be. We are different. Matt's Christian, I'm Muslim, he's right-leaning, I'm left-leaning still, I think. Matt studies theology, I'm a political scientist. But this is a place where we work out our differences and talk about the big questions of faith and politics. Yeah, man. I'm very excited about our conversation about despair and demons. Uh, we have a wonderful guest who I will uh, introduce here in just a moment. Um, but before we do, you know, one of the topics we've been tackling quite often in these first two seasons of the um, podcast has to do with political emotions um, and how we deal with uh, our guts um, when it comes to how we respond to things that enrage us or frighten us. Um, in political life, things that motivate us. And often in political theory and political science as academic disciplines, um, they really struggle to respond to political emotion, uh, to make sense of it, to, to quantify it, to measure it. And uh, political scientists, political philosophers tend to go to their heads uh, as academics do. They, they want to once again, measure, define, notate um, these human beings who are, in fact, quite emotional creatures, very effective creatures who, when it comes to politics, rarely think with their head or rationality, but often think with their appetites, uh, their guts, their their the feelings that they have in their bones. And today we've got uh, a great guide to help us think about these things. Laura Fabriki is a, a young and emerging theologian uh, who is wrestling with questions of faith and politics um, and is working on a really fascinating topic having to do with political affections, political despair, and the demonic. And I'm really excited to get into this discussion, Shadi, about demons. Uh, and the mm. ways that we think about uh, demons being active in our democracy and even in active in uh, the way that we behave on social media, uh, in protests and on the streets, on cable news, um, the ways in which uh, evil is active. And, and now, of course, I'm going to be asking you, uh, you know, from a Muslim perspective as well, uh, how, how do we think about evil and demons and all that kind of fun stuff? But before we get to the demons... Laura, we'd love to just hear a little bit about you and hoping that you can introduce yourself a little bit more. Um, and as you share your story, can you just kind of tell us how it is that you became interested in 
politics and emotion, politics and uh, political, I'm sorry, just political despair. And uh, yeah, so welcome. And yeah, can you can you walk us through just a little bit of your emerging story of how you got into all this kind of stuff? Yeah, thank you. One correction is that I'm I'm not a young emerging scholar. I'm a middle-aged emerging <laughs> scholar. <laughs> um, I, I think I'm older than both of you, um, but I am young in my scholarship. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. There we go. Just take it. <laughs> no, take I, it. for all transparency and vulnerability. Um, no, I, I actually became really surprisingly attracted to questions of political theory when I was young, in part because the political theorists that I was exposed to um, in my studies described um, miserable human beings. And I was able to sort of recognize that. Um, they didn't use sort of psychoanalytical terms necessarily that we would use today, but they do describe often sort of the misery of human beings and the misery of our short, brief, and at times meaningless lives. And that's especially true in the modern era. Um, that we we wrestle with our own angst, we wrestle with um, other people and how miserable they make us. And so I had honestly been driven into questions of political theory, I think in large part because of my emotional curiosity. It was a realm that I thought made sense. And it made sense even with my own Christian faith. I am a follower of Jesus. And um and sort of the low view that a lot of especially early modern political theorists had, someone like Thomas Hobbes, um, it fit with an under, a sort of low view of human nature that was part of my, you know, largely somewhat quasi-reformed upbringing. And so how did that take shape as you um, dug into your own, you know, scholarship? Yeah, I started learning about the term acedia from a, a writer and poet named Kathleen Norris. So it was through popular literature. but Basically, since I would say around the turn of the millennium, there's been a retrieval of this particular word, acedia, and it's dominant in a lot of um, places. It's starting to show up in economic conversations as well, and it's certainly in some scholarship related to human rights. But it's it's um, a very ancient term that was used largely and kind of developed largely by um, early Christian monks. And it's very similar to, in terms of its symptoms, to depression and certainly to anxiety, definitely to boredom and listlessness. So this poet, Kathleen Norris, in a book called Acedia, Acedia and Me, describes learning the word, finding help in the word, um, being able to name at times what she would feel as sort of a numbing despair, an avoidance of work, certainly an avoidance of prayer and some of the spiritual practices that were part of her life and that it helped her to understand it, not just as that she had a problem with her mental health, but that there was a sin aspect to it. And she even sometimes grapples with it as a demon. All of her learning about it drives her back into the fourth century in the Alexandrian desert of Egypt, where these early Christian monks were developing um, a very deep psychology and also a deep demonology, understanding what they were contending with in the world. And a lot of it also had to do with how they made sense of themselves. A lot of what these Christian monks look at is how do they 
How do they know themselves better? How do they make sense of their sort of interior space, their emotional life? And how do they live with one another? How do they live with the pilgrims that come to see them? Um, how do they live with other monks that drive them nuts and, and, and enrage them? How do they deal with temptations that come to them? And uh, so that's, that's what she discovered. As I would say that as um, I, I found a lot of help in her kind of personal like memoir account of learning about that word and how it helped her in her marriage and her, her vowed commitments to her husband and then also in her understanding of her vocation as a writer and as a poet. And that at times she felt herself sort of oppressed, um, not able to write, not able to pray. And these monks and how they, what they taught her from her studies helped her to recommit in a different way to both her vow, her, the vows of marriage and also to her vocational calling as a writer. How, how was she able to do that? So... She really did learn from the monks. Um, what you discover when you read something like um, the sayings of the Desert Fathers, so that would be, this is the collected sayings of, of these ancient monks. And there were mothers there too, but it's mostly called the Desert Fathers. They, they assess, they develop a sort of um, discernment quality. They, 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 they discover how they have to kind of be in communication with one another about what's happening in their inner lives. They also have to attend to their bodies. They have to make sure they're getting sleep and rest. At times their fasts were too intense. At times their prayer, like the, their prayers would become a bit too gymnastic. Like they were trying to achieve too much and they were being more heroic and they had to dial it down. I have that problem too. Yeah. <laughs> endless <laughs> prayers, endless fasting. Yeah. Don't we all? <laughs> and often, um, I think one of the things that Norris was really struck by was that some of the guidance isn't do more, be better, be holier in the way that we might see like, oh, we should try harder. Sometimes it means we actually need to um, to receive rest that God wants to give us or to, to rest in God's love or to pray the smallest psalm. Like one of the tools that she would describe is, and all of these monks would say is that you wage with the psalms. So the psalms are prayer poems that are part of the scriptures and and a lot of them deal deeply with emotions emotions that we have within ourselves emotions that we might have against other people we're experiencing fear guilt shame with respect to our relationships with our neighbors certainly with powerful people um, and then also the the emotions that we have towards god and they and what she would say is she notes that they would sometimes advise a, a monk who is particularly gripped by acedia, um, who was tempted into sloth, tempted into boredom, tempted into leaving his or her cell, like her vowed commitments to to God, to pray the shortest psalm, which was Psalm seventeen, because that's that might be all your soul could do. And it might be the only thing that you might be able to, to muster, even if you couldn't feel anything, commit yourself to the smallest prayer that you can pray. So how do you see acedia working in American political life today? What, can you give us some practical examples of how this term acedia might help us understand what's happening to American democracy and just our posture towards political life um, here in this country? I think it's a particularly useful word um, 
to recognize at times our sense of helplessness and vulnerability um, and to help us accurately name what we might be feeling. Acedia does not have, I'm not sure we've fully developed what acedia is, but acedia can have a quality that looks like disengagement, or it could have a quality that looks like hyper-engagement, trying to do too much or entering into hyper-distraction. And so that's where the quality of discernment is really important to emphasize here, that we it's not something that you can just like spot it and stop it. You actually have to be in relationship with other people and, and allow them to, to have um, a bit of authority in observing your behaviors or recognizing who you might be, allowing someone to be a mirror to you. Um, so um, I think acedia can be helpful in naming and helping us to name some of the loneliness that we feel in American life in general and how we might be using politics to satisfy some deeper relational needs that politics can't. Um, I also think that acedia, particularly its demonic aspect, I, I actually can't stand that I've been having to talk about demons, but it is an unavoidable aspect of, of understanding acedia, understanding it from the monk's perspective. And I also think it is important for us to recognize that this language and what it means, it persists and perdures in a lot of conflict study and a lot of political science language because we do openly talk about demonization. I mean, this is this is part of stuff that we talk about. Hmm. And you see it in particular in fractious communities that are tempted into violence and warfare. And what typically happens in demonization is an aspect of othering of other people, dehumanizing them in our imaginations, and also, I think, uh, aggrandizing ourselves, we're trying to at times satisfy our own sense of shame and kind of avoid the shame that we might feel about our own vulnerabilities or our weaknesses. And we use other people in order to satisfy that felt need. Understanding that we do that is really important. Um, and I think what I'm most fearful about in invoking the word demon is that it makes it sound like it's otherworldly or supernatural. And I actually think it's very thisworldly, you could say paranatural, but it's also something that you don't really have to be a believer about. Um, you don't have to have a faith necessarily to understand demonic patterns. So I really am not trying to like, I don't wanna talk about it and like make people to believe in demons and look for demons under the sofa pillows or anything like that. It's that we actually participate with other people demonically, and it's usually in the ordinary course of our day, not as like, because we're like, you know, our eyes are spinning in the back of our heads and sticking our tongues out. Um, it's usually because we are, we are kind of losing our sense of self. We're disequilibrated, we're disoriented, and then we are grasping mindlessly for any way to kind of stop the inner churn. So what, what would that look like in a social media exchange? Like walk me through a social media exchange about politics and like, how would you narrate a, a demonology of, of a social media exchange? <laughs> so I want to draw on, I'm not a deep expert in Soren Kierkegaard, but he actually has a pretty fully orbed understanding of the demonic. And he does so, um, he, it's in his book called The Concept of Anxiety. And he talks about, 
um, the demonic as having um, an aspect of being shut up and enclosed. So I actually think that at times us engaging on social media without a sense of um, full, more fully personally disclose, disclosure, like that we aren't using our names. Um, there's a lot of accounts that like don't use their names. They um, What they enjoy is just kind of trolling, pinging, trying to provoke. And that the language is non-disclosing. Um, it, it is often just anger or it's um, piling on, accusing, dehumanizing. So you see a ton of violence in social media. It's completely fruitless. It's an utter waste of time. It's enervating. But there is a human being, or there might not be, there could just be a bot that's you know now getting AI generation of demonic language. But there are people that are behind these accounts and are completely wasting their lives. Like this is this is fruitless behavior and it's dehumanizing to them. Like they're not actually engaging politically. They're engaging demonically. Um, and at times we have to actually call that out to say, I would love to engage with you as a human being, but if you're not going to engage with me openly and authentically, and it, and it doesn't have to be like hyper vulnerably, but in good faith, we're not going to be able to have conversation. Yeah. So it's, it's the closing off of oneself to communion with another. Completely. Right. That's right. The closing off of vulnerability. Shadi. But, but so why is the word demonically helpful in this context if we're not actually talking about real, actual demons? And we'll get to those in a moment because they do play a role of some sort. But in terms of using it as a kind of term of art, as a way to emphasize like the badness of something, I think there can be a little bit of confusion there because we're obviously talking here about a, like metaphorical demons, but then if they're not actual demons, what does that give us? I think of it as a question of emphasis. I think when I, when I use the term demonic or demon, I am leery, I think because I am very much a modern, of how that term has been used to dehumanize people. Um, it's an easy shortcut to um, alienating, excluding, um, and and justifying violence to others. Um, and I think anytime you see that kind of behavior, whether we're calling other people cockroaches, like you see it in conflicts where the lang language of political discourse or public discourse starts to coarsen. And you start to see certain groups who are powerful and ascendant using it to kind of crush other people. This is why I'm cautious about it, because eventually we can make in our minds a demon of another person. But we, I want to emphasize the demonic and use it in that way, whether or not we are talking about real demons or not, because that to me indicates that we're trying to emphasize what it means to be a human being and what it means to have personal freedom and what it means even to have autonomy and a sense of self-governance about how we would engage other people. Okay. That's helpful. But you do believe that there's such a thing as demons that are active in the world. So as a person who takes the Bible and Jesus seriously, I do. I think there's a lot of conversation right now. Like I just read an Atlantic Monthly article today. It's online. It's about a woman who bought a mountain because God told her to. And she's involved in a group that does demonic mapping. Um, I, I think that 
sounds like we are centering demons in a way that Jesus never invites us to. Jesus deals with demons and he releases people from oppression. Um, But I actually think that the demonic is probably uh, we can behave demonically and we should be aware of how we can be drawn into that and not going around imagining that we have to find it. Okay, so if we're drawn into it and if we're talking about bad or even evil political actors, so think Putin or Bashar al-Assad or as some Americans might see it, um, Donald Trump in our context, when they do bad things, to what extent could there be supernatural forces pushing them to do that? Just so I, I just to get a little bit more clarity on how this might actually work. Like, are there evil forces in the paranatural or supernatural realm that can like induce a particular leader to do evil things? Or is that coming primarily from their own free will and choice? Um, or, or is it other factors? I believe that I, 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 well, I'll first say, I don't know. I don't have a strong sense of how to speak about this in public life in a way that is careful enough, Um, nor to speak about it in theological terms. As a Christian, I believe that there is evil in the world. And I also think that it in no way has a grip over us that we don't have tools and grace and the presence of the Holy Spirit for those of us who are, you know, following Jesus Christ, that we don't have tools available to us to wrestle with ourselves and push away um, that which may tempt us into sin or to behaving demonically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let, let me try this out on, on on you, Laura, and then you try to, maybe you can edit me as a, as a fellow Christian theologian. Okay. As far as Christian political theology or just Christian theology in general, when it comes to, to demons and, and, and such, uh, it seems to me that Christian theology won't allow us to uh, fall off on either side of this ledge. One side of the ledge would be... Um, we as human beings are uh, completely vulnerable to evil forces that are beyond us and that can control us and and fill us and and we are just porous human beings who uh, can be steered this way and that by demonic forces so we can't go on that side on the other side we can't believe that we are buffered selves to use the like the modern term of charles taylor that that i have this boundary and I am completely responsible for my actions, and it is my will alone that causes me to do this or to do that. Um, and I am impervious to um, other uh, political, economic, spiritual forces. I, I'm autonomous. And it seems to me that Christian theology won't let us go for the either or of those things. It, Christian theology will say, no, actually, um, you are a porous human being that is vulnerable to evil forces. And as Laura says, we, we also have this assurance that Christ is with us and that we are in Christ and that the spirit can protect us. Um, but it's going to involve some wrestling. And 
I think Laura, you would also say that like the the desert, um, the desert fathers and mothers provide us with a narration of how to do that wrestling. Um, and so, but anyways, can you edit what I just said? Because you have spent a lot more time thinking about this than I have, which is about 15 minutes. No, I do think what you're describing where you said we can't, we can't let go of either of these aspects is exactly right. That there's actually a very high tension here that we have to hold certainly in Christian theology or in Christian political theology. The place where I have seen most recently in some of my reading about the value of maintaining an understanding of the demonic where it might not just be about the supernatural and identifying sort of personified evil is in readings from African-American theologians when they're assessing um, American slavery. So I've been reading through um, Dr. Dan Juma Gibson's, uh, it's a psychobiography of, um, of Frederick Douglass. And what he, what he sees in Frederick Douglass is someone who is wrestling with, how do I make sense of the fact that I am fundamentally living a, a completely dehumanized life and that I am trapped in it? And at the same time, I'm noticing these slavers, these people who are keeping me and others enslaved can go to their prayer meetings and they can actually have ecstatic worship and enter into the scriptures and, and come home actually really feeling it, like feeling quite self-righteous. And then at the same time, direct an enormous amount of violence, depravity, um, sexual enslavement, um, just all, you know, the outbreaking of hell. And what Douglas doesn't, Set, he doesn't call it, um, I don't think he uses, he does use the word demon or demonic, but he, he cut, he gets into a sense of like this incredible split that happens within people that they can really not know themselves, but they can also be deeply engaged in kind of Christian activity. And they don't see how those things are kind of held apart. Um, so whether we can see, the demonic as being systems like American slavery, where there's a complete divorce between what we understand the value of the human person and how we actually live and how we actually treat people, and that we need to have um, a more authentic understanding of that in political life. I want to get Shadi in on this. So you've been listening to a couple Christians go <laughs> back and forth trying to figure out, you know, what do we think about demons and evil spirits and and the political? I'm wondering from your own, you know, Islamic upbringing and and thinking, how does how does all this um intersect with uh Islamic perspectives on on evil, on temptation, on despair? demons uh yeah what are where do your thoughts go on on this kind of stuff yeah so i mean growing up we were discouraged from talking about um evil spirits or potentially evil spirits that are known as jinn um jinn can be both good and bad um they have free will and they can make choices they can also um uh, become become Muslim. That's a kind of category. And then there are shayateen or devils from the singular shaitan, which um, who are exclusively evil and don't really have a way to no to become something else. And um, these devils or demons, if you want to call them that, 
they whisper in the ears of believers and try to tempt them. That doesn't mean they can really make you do something that you don't want to do, but they can sort of like plant the seed of doubt um, that can lead you to commit sin and so forth. Um, and there is, um, uh, there's a hadith about how uh, during Ramadan, the, um, the devils are chained so they can, they can't, they can't actually, you know, um, you know, whisper. And so you're, it's, it's be In other words, it's easier to be a, a better person and a better believer during Ramadan. And, and that's one of the reasons it's a, it's a holy month. But I would say that <clears throat> I haven't really thought a lot about how these categories of jinn and, and devils would really have direct political implications. Um, there are ways to interfere with the jinn. It's something that, you know, we don't really talk about and you hear stories here and there, but it's definitely something you don't want to kind of get into or think too much about. That was always the way that I saw it. Like, this is a thing. There are these dark arts, but um, you don't want to get involved in that because, you know, uh, yeah, for obvious reasons, you know. Um, so... But I'm very much like in terms of Islamic debates, I'm I tend to be much more in the free will category of things that does tend to be how I kind of view how individual Muslims or non-Muslims kind of act or don't act. And um, we have the choice to be good or bad. And ultimately, that's a responsibility that's with us as individuals. So even if someone like Putin, for example, is... Um, is somehow influenced by a demonic force that we can't see. Um, he's still ultimately making his own choices. And because he makes his own choices, therefore God can hold him accountable for those choices in the day of judgment. And presumably there will be um, an accounting. Yeah, Laura, what's your take on, on what you just heard? I'm kind of ambivalent as to how we might describe the presence of demons and I know that I, I'm aware of those like jinn. I don't know the other term for the devils, but um, but that there's nothing about the demonic that is that can simply overpower us. I do think it can get hard where you might see emergent participation in things that are overwhelming, like um, where people feel increasingly that they wouldn't be able to make a difference, that they fundamentally don't have free will because it seems like evil is growing. You see this sometimes in um, Holocaust studies or places where there would be a real outbreak of evil and, and a person might feel coerced or they don't, they don't feel like they have free will. Um, so um, that's, I think, one of the difficulties of talking about this is that the demonic ultimately should remind us that we do have free will. It's not costless. Um, we have to actually wrestle with ourselves and we often might have to face things that are difficult um, to resist. I, I think what we're getting into here is theodicy or the kind of puzzle or problem of why God permits evil in this world. Um, so I would be curious, Laura, like more on how, how this all fits into the theodicy debate. And you did mention Holocaust studies and 
I think this is oftentimes just an ordinary conversation with folks. Um, they'll often say stuff like, well, how can, if God is omniscient and if he's good and great and perfect, how can he allow these things to happen? Why doesn't he intervene? I would say like from an Islamic perspective, I feel like that's less of an issue in kind of Islamic theological debates because because I think free will or um, individual agency gives an obvious answer to that. Like God can't intercede and stop Putin or someone similar from doing something bad. I mean, that's just not the way the like that's just not something presumably God is doing on a regular basis. And it would also kind of undermine the moral structure if God is preventing certain people from doing bad things. Um, then they're not actually exercising their free will um, and choose. they're not able then to choose between good and bad, and that is ultimately one of the defining tests of being um, an individual human being is how do you deal with this challenge of choosing between vice and, and virtue. Um, but But also I think the fact that there's very clearly an afterlife, um, less so in Judaism, and I think that's an important difference. But because we have an afterlife with clearly designated, well, at least, um, obviously, there are a lot of debates about what hell and heaven actually look like and what levels are and all that stuff. So there's a lot of uncertainty here, but there is at least a basic conception of hell and heaven. And I think that does... Um, allow a certain, a certain, I don't want to say resolution, but something towards a resolution when it comes to this question of evil, because there is an ultimate <clears throat> vindication, or if you see this world as more temporary, then it makes it easier to contend with the inescapable fact of evil in this world on this earth. Yeah, but Sh- Sh- Shadi, just to push on that just for a second, the, I mean, the, I hear your, you know, emphasis on free will and taking responsibility um, um, for your actions. But I think there's there's some real wisdom in both Islam and Christianity on this, on the vulnerability of the human person that um, we really do need to recognize. And I see this like very much on the ground in political discourse today on social media and so forth of interacting with so many people who imagine they really do imagine that they are an independent political actor, that they have a political opinion that they have created out of nothing and they are bringing it to the public square rather than understanding that they have been shaped and formed by all kinds of forces that they can see and that they can't and that they're porous and that they're moldable and that they're vulnerable and that they can be shaped in all sorts of ways. And so I think that I would argue that democracy requires um, both an understanding that individuals are responsible, that they have freedom and agency, but also a a deep understanding that we are porous and vulnerable um, and that we need citizens who see both of those things. And then this way, I think that this this ancient <laughs> demonology that we see active in in both Christianity and Islam um is an important wisdom for us today and I I just um 
I don't know. I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting more into this, Laura. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting more into this. I, I'm not gonna be able to speak specifically to theodicy. I know I'm the one who invoked Holocaust studies and I don't want to be glib about any of that. My, what I see to return this to acedia and to return this to sort of our political moment is that, um, there is a sense, I would say there's a palpable sense, and it's not just in the United States, but elsewhere, that democracy really can't serve human flourishing, um, that we really can't actually live the lives that we want to live, and that we can't, we can't bear to live with people that we see as our political enemies. And we are withdrawing in some ways uh, from, I think right now we're actually in a great contest as to whether we, we want to cherish the principles that are behind democracy. For me, I see democracy as a way of um, acknowledging the value of other human beings um, and that life isn't only lived by top-down decision-making, but that we may actually, we could have a voice. We could cultivate a listening posture to other people. I think that democracy can help us to meet more basic human needs than and not necessarily satisfy sort of our existential longings. Um, and the way that acedia as a temptation to sin or to use the language of the of these desert monks as a demon, as a temptation or a tempting bad thought is that we would be tempted to withdraw from relationships, from real relationships with other people, that we would refuse to actually see real political problems in our midst. Um, and that we would refuse to see the people that are having to live with those political problems and that we might just get really busy with engaging with social media or we aren't really, we're doing more um, uh, like horse race comparisons instead of actually talking with our neighbors and fellow citizens about political challenges that they're facing, that we might actually be able to listen to with respect and encounter and that that might bring us into a greater deal more pain. We might actually have to recognize our own pain, our own disappointments, our own fear, guilt, shame, and that we would also become aware of what others are bearing too. And, and in that way, actually give them honor their humanity. Um, I don't think we have many places where we can do this as people. But at the same time, I think democracy is easily the best system that allows for the the various kind of personal encounters, the possibility of listening that you mentioned. Um, that doesn't mean all democracies actually reflect this, but they at least make it possible in a way that is not possible in authoritarian settings. I mean, the personal encounter that you just described is simply not possible if you live in an authoritarian state. There is no kind of natural um sort of uh there's always there's always a d distorting mechanism in authoritarian contexts there's always a kind of cloud of fear and threat of persecution and threat of government intrusion in one's you know personal and political li life that i just think makes listening like what does it mean to listen in a dictatorship, what would that even look like? So as as dark and as seemingly, you know, we see evidence of demonic forces in, in democracies, um, we sh I just don't think we should lose sight of how democracy 
at least out of the available options that we're aware of, is is far superior in this respect. I agree. But feel free to push back on that. I don't have much pushback on that. I actually think that I think that democracy is the best available option. And I also think that it has to have a very lively sense of um, the preciousness of individual human life. And, um, and I agree with you that in authoritarian settings or even in authoritarian settings that claim to be democracies, but they functionally aren't qualitatively democracies, that you aren't actually getting real human encounter. Um, people are having to, they're having to dissemble. They're having to be shut up. They're having to be, they're having to be careful about cloaking their identities or cloaking their opinions. Um, and for an example, I've actually, the two episodes that you all had, um, prior to this one that I thought were most, uh, cogent to our conversation today was one is prayer is political and the other was unfasting. Hmm. Again, the language of war is problematic, but you could call them weapons, prayer and fasting as weapons. Um, in prayer, and I want to draw an example, I'm, I wrote a book um, in uh, 2020 that was um, a memoir of my time as a volunteer guide at the Bonhoeffer House in Berlin, and as um, all about the life of uh, the German uh, Lutheran theologian and political activist, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. As part of our my exploration of his life, I also learned about prayer movements that were part of early resistance to communism in East Germany. And there were people that would come every Monday to a church in Leipzig and they would pray. Not many of these people, I would say, were standardly theistic. Like, I don't know if they would have identified as Christians, but they came to pray and they prayed for peace. And they prayed for years, for years showing up at that church. And a lot of people would point to that prayer movement as a sort of spiritual beginning. There was something that was being ignited there that helped people, I think, develop a sense of trust with others, really make contact with their fear and their despair, and then actually lift that to God. Um, and I think it kind of built a sense of um, the sort of a kind of spirit of democracy that really did help to fuel pushback against the dominant regime. So if you think of prayer and fasting as a weapon, Shadi, I'm going back to your comment about Ramadan and the, the demons being shut up during Ramadan. Is that an understanding that like that God shuts up the demons or that the prayer and fasting and piety that's going on during Ramadan somehow invokes a spiritual power that keeps them at bay. What do you think about that? Hmm. Interesting. I'd have to look into that. I mean, my understanding is that they're actually chained by who though? Um, uh, by God. Okay. Uh, okay. Maybe, um, <laughs> interesting. I, I can, I don't want to speak out of okay. turn on this. It might be a little bit more complicated than, than my understanding allows for, but, okay. um, a, a, a little pivot here for both of you have spent a good amount of time living in the middle East, um, before and during, uh, the Arab spring. And we've talked a good amount about American political despair and American political acedia and the ways in which yeah, Americans um, demonize and play with demons uh, when it comes to political discourse. Um, I'm wondering from, you know, maybe first Shadi, um, as you think about the ways that political despair um, shows up 
in the Middle East right now, as, as the Arab Spring, you know, um, Peter's Falls, you know, um, how do you think about, uh, you know, this acedia term that Laura has been talking about in terms of either withdrawing from political life and sort of despair and resignation or becoming hyper engaged in political life in, in ways that are unhealthy and destructive. How do you see these things working out in, in your research, um, around Islamic politics in the Middle East? Yeah, well, there's definitely a question of theodicy as it relates to what happened during the Arab Spring, particularly if you look at certain Islamist movements like the Muslim Brotherhood, you know, a group that had been waiting, um, you know, rather patiently in some ways for, for 80 years to actually have a chance at power. They did have that chance at power. Um, it was a remarkable reversal. But then, but then something terrible happened to the movement and the individuals within it, um, including a massacre, but also um, the worst repression just more generally that the movement had ever experienced in Egypt. And I think that, you know, one thing I heard, um, you know, in my field work and spending time with especially younger activists in the Brotherhood at the time, after what happened, after the coup and after the massacre and after many of them went into exile or spent time in prison and so forth, it was sort of like, how did God, you know, quite literally, like, how did this happen? Maybe they wouldn't say, how did God allow this to happen? But it was like, how do we make sense of this? Because if they would say, if if we if we are an Islamic movement that is trying to uphold the Sharia and we are strong believers and devout, how is it possible that the result would be this brutal repression after a high point? It's such a precipitous fall from grace in such a short period after so much hope. It is something that is profoundly disorienting, and that's why there are, you know, a significant number of younger Brotherhood members who are now ex-Brotherhood, especially in exile. I mean, exile is also like a very difficult thing to experience when you, I mean, as nice as Istanbul might be, it's a beautiful city. I mean, you're sort of suspended. You never, you don't know when you're going to see your family again. Uh, in some cases, your family might disown you or, um, and you don't know how to make a decision about how to live your life. It's that feeling of uncertainty and sort of being suspended in this middle space that I think is just very disorienting. So in that context, you do have, um, you know, many brotherhood members who have depoliticized or left the brotherhood or have tried sampling other ideologies, um, because what do you do? I mean, it's very hard to continue doing the same thing that you were doing before after such a set of events. So I think this, I think depoliticization is something you see, and not just among Brotherhood folks, but also secular, liberal, and leftist activists. There just simply isn't space to do politics in Egypt. And then it can be very frustrating to do politics in exile because you feel like you're just screaming into a void and that you're essentially irrelevant, you know? Um, so I think that 
yeah how do how do you kind of bounce back from that kind of defeat is like a really interesting question and if you look at um some previous like very dark episodes in other countries so algeria had a military coup in 1992 and a civil war for the remainder of a decade more than a hundred thousand killed it took algerians basically a generation to be able to muster the courage once again to go out into the streets and protest and that happened in 2017 so 92 2017 25 years um, there was one of the worst massacres of the modern period in the Arab world in Syria, in Hama in 1982. It took Syrians until 2011 to be able to muster the courage to actually resist the regime. That's what, 29 years. So this is just to say that like, it's very difficult to bounce back from this kind of like devastating repression. So these are the people that you've studied. And maybe to get more personal, Shadi, I want to ask you a question about you. Okay. Because you have invested a good amount of your life and work in Arab democracy. And, you know, the last 10 years have been rough. And uh, how do you personally wrestle with these these questions of acedia? I'd be curious of, um, you know, being very active and then kind of personally withdrawing a bit from these kinds of discussions as well. Do you feel tempted uh, by outside forces of of despair, or maybe they're just internal for you? Um, but the the temptation to despair and resign oneself and say, "Well, it's I, th I think I've heard you say it's going to be twenty years before you know somebody's going to have the energy to to." to push for democracy again. Yeah. And so I hear resignation in your voice and, and how do you, how do you think about this just personally as someone who's dedicated a lot of life and, and passion to this? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you've put your finger on something important. I mean, I don't know if I'd use the word despair, but the, there is definitely on my end, a sort of resignation that, there's only so much you can do. And if, if listeners and viewers want to get like the full version of this, they can listen to the how to avoid political burnout episode where I talk about the personal aspect a little bit more. But the short version is that, yeah, I'm more or less resigned for the foreseeable future. Um, it could have been otherwise. None of this was inevitable. I can imagine a counterfactual history where the Arab Spring continued moving in a positive direction, but because of the, the action and agency of particular individuals at particular moments, it went a different way. Um, so when people say, well, it was inevitable, nothing's inevitable when you're actually living through it. It's only inevitable in retrospect, which means it probably wasn't inevitable. But putting that aside, you know, uh, I guess that's part of maybe in a way I'm just thinking out loud here. That's part of why I think I've become like more religious or more religiously inclined because the less you're able to accomplish in this world and this life, the more, com the more sort of a kind of mysticism or a kind of deferral until the next life becomes more compelling. It's sort of like, well, yeah, I mean, life sucks for a lot of people around the world, and this is terrible and depressing. And maybe that's just a reminder to us to 
you know, focus on ourselves and our own families and local communities and the rest is up to God. And that might mean that there isn't any justice that can be realized in this, in this current era, at least not in the Middle East. All right, Laura, there was a lot in there. I'd love to, I, I, Laura, I'd love to hear your reflections on that uh, and, and what the kind of things that you heard there. I know we had mentioned this earlier, but I was also living in the Middle East during the Arab Spring, and um, yeah. we were living in Amman, and we actually happened to be traveling in Damascus during the, on, it was over like President's Day weekend in 2011 when some of the earliest protests were happening. I was so moved by the courage of um, seeing women pushing their children with strollers during that protest. And to me, that typified exactly what is precious and good and right about democracy, um, valuing those who are vulnerable, who see um, lesser and quieter voices as having um, a seat at the table, even if it is a very small seat, and, and deserving of living outside of structures of fear. Um, I was devastated to see how these movements were crushed. And I don't want to describe this in kind of like naive or like just wistful terms, but it did remind me of how, um, how terribly ungrateful I am in very practical ways of the gift of having been born into a democracy. Mm. And I think I want to probably open the aperture a little bit as to what we might describe as political, because I actually think there's a lot of political questions that, um, that we can attend to outside of just sort of tending to ourselves and our families and our friends, that we are always invited into um, seeing our um, seeing our neighbors and particularly seeing those who aren't powerful or who may, might be quite vulnerable in the world as people that we can actually care for and serve and that that can be described as political work as well. Um, and I think I think getting into a place where we're disappointed is not the worst thing in the world. It helps us to sort ourselves out. Um, I, one, of the, one of the things that I really appreciate about the desert monks is that they withdrew into the desert in order to um, face themselves and to face God. And they were not free from demonic, um, demonic uh, temptation there, but they learned to wrestle with themselves there. And they learned to, in some ways, not just double down, but really get to know their business, get to know that the work that they were supposed to do. So I tend to think that what we are, um, that we're, what we're invited to do when we find ourselves in political deserts is to discover, to rediscover our own moral agency and that we will be relieved of the malaise of it when we discover it for others. Um, that ultimately we should be hmm. not just trying to discover how we can accrue power and how we could, get our guys in or our party, but that we actually might have really deep political work to do that would address others' needs and that it would maybe empower them um, and and help them have a better, uh, maybe more of a seat at the table or address just the needs of those that we would call, um, you know, the, the kind of the classically vulnerable in the biblical sense or in the Abrahamic sense, um, paying attention to the orphan, the widow, the sojourner and refugee and um and those we could even say those who are imprisoned like those who simply are are pulled away from from political life who really don't have political agency 
and that those people actually might be the ones that we need to be exercising our agency for. Yeah. Um, and just a follow-up question on that. Um, you mentioned disappointment can be productive because it pushes us to wrestle with our disappointment. But I wonder if if that's if we could say the same about despair or depression. I think, you know, it's an interesting question as to when certain kinds of despair become just utterly paralyzing and then the person who's suffering from the despair is not able to wrestle or to learn or to grow as a result of the experience. But I guess this makes me wonder, you know, obviously there isn't a Christian position on depression, but to what extent is depression, to what extent can depression be seen as a kind of natural outcome of life being, you know, life in all of its difficulty and complexity, and that it's meant to be a kind of signal to the believer that something has to change, that if they do reach these depths of depression, it means that something is fundamentally misaligned in their sort of spiritual makeup, that they, that they then are forced. At some point, some people feel forced to change things because depression is so terrible. But again, that brings us back to they could also be paralyzed by it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of subtleties there that probably a podcast discussion isn't going to be equipped to address. Um, <laughs> but I do think that paying attention to our, our emotions are important beginnings of knowing ourselves and important ways that we can um, maybe discover how we're living in unbounded ways, like that we actually aren't attending to just basic self-care, that we might need to be in deeper relationships with others, maybe in relationships that are, um, yeah, that we're, that we might be living in some ways that are kind of beyond what we should be living. Um, and that a lot of what life is, is fairly ordinary living. We might be a bit tempted to some of the vainglory of politics rather than the ordinary need meaning of politics. Um, so when it comes to depression, I think there's, again, I don't think that it's, depression is not the same thing as acedia. Um, depression does, is often capable of being treated. Acedia is something that has to be um, discerned and then it has to be um, fought. <laughs> it has to, I was about to say contended with. Yeah. <laughs> it has to be, and we have to do so with practices. And, and I think that those can be, they can be comorbid. I think that people who are depressed can also have places where they may need to actually take up, take up their agency and practice their agency. And that exercise of agency might be quite small. Okay. So all of this, all of this makes me think of Tina Fey. And let oh me explain gosh. why. <laughs> Okay, did so, not see that coming. Tina Fey. All right. So, you know, like when whenever we have an election, of course, we're told this is the most important election of our lives. And then when your side loses, you normally say, well, I'm moving to Canada or, you know, I'm quitting or you're withdrawing. And I think it was after Trump's election in 2016, Tina Fey got herself on Saturday Night Live and she started talking about how Donald Trump had won. And she sort of threw her, she had a big cake in front of her. Did either of you see this? I don't think I did. No, I don't think so. She just had a huge cake in front of her. And she just started explaining how Donald Trump had won. And she just started shoveling like 
facefuls of cake into her mouth to kind of deal with her depression about what America had become. And she was just full on eating her feelings, right? <laughs> and as I'm listening to you talk, both of you, about, you know, political despair, of course, in a, in a broken and evil world, we experience political defeat. Like that is just guaranteed part of life. And we experience political despair and acedia. That is, that is just life here on this earth. It is, it is the question, I think the insight that you're pointing us to, Laura, which is what do you do with that defeat, that despair, that acedia? And what the, what the desert fathers and mothers point us to is you actually don't just eat cake, right? Or you don't just run away to Canada or, you know, go into despair, but there's actually democracy requires practices of dealing with political despair because political despair is just part of what democracy is. And I, I don't know if you can respond to that or not, but I think Tina Fey is helpful in thinking about all of this. Hmm. That's it's a, it's a great little, it's a, it's a good, um, well, I think humor actually does a lot for us. I think, I actually think like, um, Arabs have wicked senses of humor. Like that's actually something there's like a ton of like fabulous political joking. It's an incredibly powerful form of resistance. And also poets are often quite uh, destabilizing as well for different parts of the world because they also say truths that I think comics do pretty well. So let's take Tina Fey. Let's discover that we are now eating our political cake and we are just trying to get as numb as we can. What's hopeful about being able to name that despair as acedia is that we can say, wait a second, I'm eating cake as the answer. I need to stop doing that. I know, I know what I need to do. I need to stop. And now, and now what do I do? Okay. I'm going to wipe the frosting off my face. I'm going to do some basic bodily self-care. I might eat some vegetables. <laughs> um, I'm going to turn around and look to see who am I not feeding because I am gorging myself on cake and I'm only thinking about myself? I'm going to reach out to people because I'm a human being who has relational need. Um, and I'm going to talk to them and I'm going to listen to them. They're probably going to be annoying because they're human and I'm not going to eat cake as the answer to that um, because I'm noticing that they're tolerating me too and they're allowing me to be human. I'm going to practice those kinds of things. And, and part of what's lovely about actually using taxonomies of sin is that you can confess them, you can repent, and these are tools that are at our disposal. There's nothing about us discovering ourselves as sinful or as fallen that is depressing, it's facing reality. And once we actually face reality, we can learn to engage with it in more appropriate ways than just cake. Can secular folks um, repent in quite the same way, or do you feel that it requires a belief in something transcendent for it to actually work as actual repentance? <laughs> okay, while you ponder that, I have a little aside for you guys, because you brought up the fact that Arabs are funny. <laughs> they are. Which They're, like, legitimately funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, in Egypt, actually... Um, I don't know if I'd call it a profession, but there is a kind of, um, like different neighborhoods will have like a joke maker or a joke writer. 
And if you're invited to like a dinner party or a gathering with friends and family, because jokes are such, especially political jokes, are such an important part of Egyptian culture, or at least they used to be before Egypt became like properly totalitarian. But um, that, you know, you want to be able to impress the people that you're with that you have a new joke. So you would go to the joke maker and you'd pay him and he would give you a joke or two. And then you would be sort of like ready to perform really well and be funny and then the become the life of the party at the party. I suppose the danger is if everyone did this, then everyone would have new jokes simultaneously. So I don't know quite how that works. But just to say that, you know, this kind of figure plays an important role in certain societies. It's true. It's true. <laughs> we do need... No... We need these figures. You've had enough time to think about it. Do we need God? <laughs> As a Christian, I I have to say that we need God. I do. I do. I This is reality for me, and I think it is reality. That said, I think that people who cannot believe in God, who don't feel that or who feel differently, can recognize the value of truth-telling and repair. And whether we can call that, I think we could call that confession. Um, I think we, I think truth telling and repair and experiencing forgiveness and asking for forgiveness from others is a really important practice. And it is sanity producing. Like it helps us to feel connected and um, to others. And it gives us a taste of our capacity as human beings to bring repair to ruptured relationships. Um, so I do think that's available, whether, I mean, I guess we could call it confession. I think it, I think confession tends to be that, it, that God's in the room, but I think God's always in the room. And whether we acknowledge him, whether we acknowledge God's presence or not, I think that those kinds of practices can be really helpful. And they're particularly helpful in political spaces. Well, that presents a problem if the, you know, if an increasingly large number of Americans don't believe in God or traditional faith. And if these numbers continue going the direction they're going, that does seem to have profound implications for our ability to to listen and to understand and, and respect those on the other side. This reminds me of our, our little conversation with Elizabeth Brunig a couple of weeks ago, um, where we talked about Twitter confessions and the ways in which Twitter confessions differ for her from Catholic confession. Um, and a couple of things go into that. One is often someone who's a public figure making a Twitter confession. Usually you have sort of a, a PR rep who who you know helps you craft this confession in such a way as to restore your standing. It's not so much to reconcile you to, to human beings, but to restore your standing, to restore your brand. Um, and it seems to me that uh, a, a theistic um, or Christian understanding is really more focused on the reconciliation of the relationship. And you have this, I mean, to directly respond to your question, Shadi, it seems to me that um, Islamic and or uh, Christian perspectives on confession involve a third party, which is God, God being the one who um, holds that covenantal relationship between these two people. So 
I'm responsible not simply to the person that I have wronged, but to the God who made that person. And so there's 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 three people involved in this reconciliation action. Hmm. Whereas in within the secular imagination, it's just me and you. And there's no third party sort of covenantally holding together that relationship. And and that means that, you know, of course, all human beings are are haunted by this desire to reconcile. Right. And this they're haunted by this desire to confess and to tell the truth and uh, to experience forgiveness. That's sort of a universal longing. But it's that it's that knowledge of that third party that that demands that you confess, that demands that truth is told, um, that recompense is made and that uh, reconciliation is found. Um, I, I just I see that longing in our secular political discourse. Because that longing, as you say, is so universal, it also makes me think that these kind of um, <clears throat> inclinations that we as human beings have to ask for forgiveness, grant it, confess, truth tell, it's kind of proof of God's existence. Like even people who are non-believers are inclined in this direction. And there's a whole number of other examples <clears throat> that there's certain things that just stay constant in the kind of human orientation. I mean, we've talked in the past about the Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper, who, you know, makes his point quite clearly that we all, everyone has a, well, almost everyone has <clears throat> a faith-based kind of belief system, even if it's not traditional or tied to God, as, you know, as we know him. Um, it's just something that you can't really escape. And I can only think of a few people I know who seem like utterly sort of like not in need of that. And I find them fascinating. But the fact that it's just so like preponderant in the human experience, I think, is suggestive. Yeah. Well, Laura, thank you so much for coming on. I w I'd love to close with this question for you. And maybe Shadi might want to edit the question. But as we, you know, it's 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 clear that we in in America are wrestling with political despair in Assyria. Um, it's clear that we are either hyper politicized in the way that we're living our lives, or politically resigned in the way that we're living our lives, and that we are doing battle, and that we all are vulnerable um, to forces beyond ourselves. And I wonder if you might, if you could, kind of capture for us just a few insights that we might take from these desert fathers and mothers from you know ancient Africa who who did um sort of recognize that this battle was going on what what like final insights might you have for our listeners of how we might respond to this uh politicization of excitement or despair um how might how might we take those steps what are what are your kind of your your closing thoughts for us very, if you look at the alphabetical sayings of these desert fathers um, that are, you could, you know, easily find them out there in the world. Um, the very first listing is a listing about Acedia and, um, and what to do. And the message that this a monk is given from an angel is to how to fight this temptation is to pray and to braid rope. And, and then go back and pray and then to braid rope. It's a very simple saying. 
and to just be faithful to the tasks that you have been given to do. And I think at times our prayers can help us to feel what we are longing for um, and to put those longings into words to say, what do we want for our nation? What do we want to feel in our political communities? Get to know what you are desiring and then turn to the work that is around you. Um, is there a need you could say locally, is there a need locally that you could help address? The need might not be very sexy. It actually might be pretty ordinary and un underdeveloped or unsung. I think that would be sort of a first step. And I also think getting to know the people that are actually around you um, and actually kind of just knowing who they are and, and, and just developing a relationship with them, not to win them to a particular political party, but just get to know them as people, get to know what they're, what they're interested in, what they're longing for, and see where you might have um, places of commonality, like discover your humanity in the presence of another human being. And don't be tempted only to see them as, um, as being other or distant from you. Like be curious, be curious about people. Um, and I also think there is a really valuable practice to just turning off the fray and really taking time away from settings like social media. I know you've talked in the past about doing news fasts. I think all of those are really valuable practices, like turning down the inner noise that we kind of invite into ourselves and getting clearer about who we are and, and what, we, what we're doing with our politics. And, um, and then the final thing I would say is, and to discover whatever power we may have, how we might use it for others' sake and not for ourselves. And I know that that's not very concretized, but I actually think that it's, it has to be discovered by people in their own situations and the concretization will happen through those kinds of engagements with our real lived lives, like where we actually live, the people that we're actually around and discovering what we are actually longing. Amen. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much, Laura. This has just been absolutely fantastic. And you know what? I'm going to add something to the end because this is our last episode for a while. Um, and I just want to say that listening to what you had to say, Laura, it just made me think that I want to go back to this transcript of this when it's available and just like reread our entire conversation. There were just so many nuggets of wisdom. And it's also a reminder to all of you, uh, dear listeners and, and viewers, to check out our transcripts. You know, obviously you want to see our faces and hear our beautiful voices, but you can always, uh, we have transcripts for every episode as well. Um, you know, I think this is a great way to cap uh, season two and God willing, uh, we will return at some point in the future. In the meantime, um, you got 20, I think, really awesome episodes that I think Matt and I are really proud of. Dive into them, enjoy them, and please um, spread the word about Zealots at the Gate leave a review, support us in whatever way you can by, um, I don't know, like whatever you want to do. <laughs> and, and thanks so much, everyone, for kind of being a part of this um, 
intellectual, spiritual, and philosophical journey with us. I don't want to cry or anything, but oh yeah, I don't want to tear yeah, up. So, well, oh, yeah, inshallah, we'll see you in the fall. And um, <laughs> and uh, friends, we are deeply grateful for all of your engagement over the last season, and um, it's been a lot of fun. And our thank you to our guests, Shadi. We we said we should, you know, I think we were like ten in. We're like we haven't had a woman on yet. And then we had four in a row who were just incredible talking about socialism and feminism and sex and now demons. And so it's just been awesome. So we, we finished on a high note. And uh, yeah, so Laura, thank you again. Uh, this was a lot of fun and we look forward to lots more good work from you in the future. Thanks for having me on. We will uh, share links to a variety of these things in the um, in the show notes um, to point you to future work and you can follow um, Laura on Twitter um, and uh, we'll have those links for you. Thanks again for listening to Zealots at the Gate. If you like what you heard, friends, please check out this podcast, Intellectual Seedbed at comment.org where you will find illuminating essays on politics, culture, and faith. Um, and friends, we do want to hear from you. So you can connect with us over at Twitter, at Shadi Hamid and at Matthew Kamink. Those are our Twitter handles. Note my Dutch last name, which is very easy to spell. It's K-A-E-M-I-N-G-K. And uh, you can also write to us uh, via email. Um, our address is zealots at comment.org. And you can expect a sincere exchange uh, our thanks as well to our sponsor, Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. Zealots at the Gate is hosted by Common Magazine, produced by Ali Crummy, audience strategy by Matt Crummy, with editorial direction by Ann Snyder. Until the third season, Lord willing, um, I am Matthew Kamink. And I'm Shadi Hamid. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye.